episode 72 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about Edward Snowden. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the California wildfires, white privilege, impeachment, negative interest rates, or the federal income tax coming up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music, and podbean.com. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute, and Brighton. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more details. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. I really wanted to title this episode, What Edward Snowden Taught Us About the Constitution, but in the end I stayed true to my The Truth About Naming Convention. Nonetheless, I will make the case that the Snowden Saga is an excellent tool to teach people the truth about the Constitution. See episode number three for more on that. In 2013, Edward Snowden made a life-changing decision to reveal the illegal, unconstitutional global mass surveillance bulk collection program run by the U.S. government and other crimes such as the drone program that targeted assassinations of American citizens, the spying on journalists, and on human rights groups. Snowden worked for the CIA and NSA for several years and, as a system administrator, came across documents outlining the existence of the program. The straw that broke Snowden's back, so to speak, was when he read the classified version of the Inspector General's report on the wiretapping scandal. The report he saw was completely different from the one provided to the public and Congress. Usually these public documents are simply the same top-secret version, only with certain segments redacted. The only reason there were two versions in Snowden's mind was to deceive the people and Congress. So he spent months collecting encrypting the data and taking it out of his NSA office on SD cards. He decided to give the story to journalists rather than to WikiLeaks or dumping it on the internet because he thought the journalist angle would lend a certain amount of legitimacy to the story and make it harder to dispel and refute. He researched journalists he thought he could trust and looked for locations where they could meet. He decided on Laura Portress and Glenn Greenwald. They met in Hong Kong, where Laura recorded extensive interviews with Snowden while he explained how the mass surveillance state operated, so they could explain it to their readers. Once the story hit the news, Snowden was a wanted man, as you can only imagine. He looked for a jurisdiction where he could seek asylum. He decided on Ecuador, but he had to avoid airspace of any countries with good relations with the United States. He flew from Hong Kong to Russia, and from there he was to fly to Cuba and then on to Ecuador. Unfortunately, the State Department revoked his passport when he landed in Russia. He's been there ever since. In 2013, the Snowden stories won the Pulitzer Prize for public service journalism. So what is this mass surveillance? If I had to pick a starting point for this story, a good place would be 9-11. It is in the wake of that attack that our constitutional rights were changed without our knowledge or consent. Even members of Congress were left in the dark. As Snowden puts it, quote, the Constitution had been hacked. Intelligence agencies in the U.S. used 9-11 to enlarge their power. They argued that the only reason 9-11 happened was because there were too many restrictions on them. This led to the Patriot Act, an illegal and unconstitutional global mass surveillance program, all disguised as the price of being kept safe from terrorism. 
Remember the never again slogan? As Snowden put it, the politicians, quote, turned terror into a permanent danger that required permanent vigilance enforced by unquestionable authority, end quote. They stoked fear in the hearts of Americans by using expressions like, there'll be blood on your hands and think of the children. Fear is the easiest way to cloud people's minds. It is the best friend of a government that wants to infringe on your rights. In the name of national security, our rights are and were being violated. America's 17 intelligence agencies at the time wanted most of all not to be blamed for 9-11. They wanted to ensure that the buck stopped, well, nowhere. The result was a war on liberty itself, not on terror. One side note, why are there 17 intelligence agencies? I mean, wouldn't one or two suffice? I want to walk you through some of the names of programs and legislation related to the Snowden saga as background. The first one is Operation Stellar Wind. This is the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program implemented shortly after 9-11. Originally, the program only authorized the collection of telephone and email metadata communications if one end of the conversation was foreign or if there was a link to terrorism. Now, metadata is essentially data about data, like time and date, who, when, where, etc., this, of course, morphed into the unconstitutional domestic surveillance that we see today. Reporter James Rosen had part of the story in 2004, but the Bush administration talked the New York Times out of publishing the article until one year later when Risen said he was publishing a book with the information included. If that article had been published, can you say President John Kerry? Next is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 2007. This act allowed the intelligence community to target any foreigner outside the U.S. deemed likely to communicate foreign intelligence information. That included journalists, aid workers, corporate employees, and academics. The NSA used this act to justify their bulk collection of data from Google, Microsoft, Facebook, YouTube, AOL, Apple, among others. This included email, photo, video and audio chat, web browsing history, social media posts, search engine queries, accessing your webcams, listening to your computer's internal microphone, recording your IP address, and accessing data stored on the cloud. In other words, they have the ability to record and store for perpetuity the data of your life. Then we have the rubber stamp FISA court, which was established in the late 1970s despite all the attention it's getting these days. It was designed to provide secret individual warrants regarding the foreign intelligence collection. They reportedly approve over 90% of the NSA's requests for warrants. Then they started ruling on the legality and constitutionality of bulk collection without any adversarial scrutiny. No public defense attorneys, no constitutional law advocates, just the federal government. So it's essentially a secret court in America. Even the ACLU and Amnesty International got involved, and the government claimed that the ACLU had no evidence that their client had been surveilled. The Supreme Court dismissed a case brought by the two organizations. How do we, the people, fight all three branches of the federal government? Then we have the Protect America Act of 2007. I mean, don't you just love the naming conventions of federal legislation? The Affordable Care Act comes to mind. You can rest assured the legislation accomplishes the opposite of its title. The Protect America Act was an amendment to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Among many other things, it immunized the phone companies who had been breaking the law by allowing the federal government to access its customers' records as part of Operation Stellar Wind. This, of course, violated the rights of Americans on a staggering scale. 
I mean, if your so-called constitutional right to privacy creates a right to an abortion, then surely you have the right to keep your phone records private, right? If you're curious about that right to privacy and abortion connection, listen to episodes 46 and 47, The Truth About Roe v. Wade. Anyway, the phone companies started to balk once they realized the massive liability that they were incurring and told Congress they would no longer participate in the program. So what did Congress do? They protected them from lawsuits by changing the law. So we have the Congress making illegal acts legal, just like that, snap of the finger, so to speak. They don't have to break the law because they just rewrite it to match their behavior. While we're on the topic of Congress, I can't help but speculate that given the massive amount of data available to the intelligence community, is it any wonder the unwillingness of our national elected officials to challenge what is known as the deep state or the establishment? Every so-called skeleton in the closet can be laid bare for all to see. Think about the mental gymnastics that Justice Roberts went through in order to opine that the Obamacare law was constitutional. I mean, we all have secrets. Did someone lay out some of his secrets as he wrote his opinion? Think about all the feckless Republicans at the national level. Lindsey Graham comes to mind. He currently chairs a very powerful committee in the Senate, yet sits on his hands while the Democrats try to impeach the president. What secrets does he have that handcuff him? You know what whistleblower story I would pay money to see? How much blackmail is really going on in Washington, D.C.? I mean, think about it. Drug use, porn, affairs, fetishes, medical records, homosexual activity, financial records, search engine queries. I mean, the list goes on and on what the intelligence community has access to. Even if the elected official is clean, what about his family members, his parents, kids, spouse? I mean, it's a target-rich environment for blackmailers from the intelligence community, which is now apparently above the law. They're above the Constitution. They can do whatever the hell they want. Who's going to stop them? Not Congress, not the Supreme Court, and certainly not the President, whether his name is Bush, Obama, or Trump. None of the branches of government are fulfilling their oaths of office. And guess what? No one gives a damn, except the few whistleblowers like Snowden and Julian Assange. What do they get for their troubles? Character assassination, exile, and in the case of Assange, slowly killed by years of isolation and Lord only knows what kinds of mental and physical abuse he has endured. If you want to learn more about Julian Assange, listen to episode 42. To demonstrate the absurdity of the power vested in the intelligence community, consider James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, who, for those of you who don't remember, lied under oath before Congress. This lying occurred a year before Snowden came forward. When asked by Congressman Ron Wyden, quote, does the NSA collect any type of data at all for millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, end quote. Clapper replied, no, sir. Wyden responded, it does not. Clapper responded, not wittingly. Keep in mind, Congressman Wyden knew that was a lie at the time of the questioning. Clapper admitted it was a lie after Snowden released his data. Clapper argued it was the least untruthful thing he could think to say in the context. What was Clapper's punishment for committing perjury? Well, because of his disdain for President Trump, his punishment has been an unwarranted level of prestige bestowed on him by the left. He has been a regular contributor on left-wing news outlets about all things anti-Trump. Russia collusion and impeachment are two of his favorite topics. Did the feckless Congress prosecute him? What do you think? So the bottom line is, our elected officials are highly incented not to rock the boat. 
people who reach the highest levels of government do so by being risk-averse. Their goal is never to screw up in a major way. This mentality breeds mediocrity, buck-passing, and cautiousness. Throw on top of that mentality the likelihood of some blackmail from the intelligence community, and you have a recipe for abuse of power on biblical proportions. I have argued on many episodes of the, of the Truth Quest podcast that we are living in a post-constitutional era in America. I have news for you. It will continue until individual states start to secede from the Union. I don't see any other way to write the constitutional ship. Nothing will change, especially in this relatively new era of mass surveillance where everyone is subject to blackmail. Not until a few states look at our overlords in D.C. and flip them the double middle finger and tell the federal government to go screw themselves. I mean, they're bankrupting the country, they ignore the Constitution, they're spying on everyone without a warrant, they're currently trying to overturn an election via what is only can be described as a deep state coup, they are ignoring our immigration laws, they are sending our young men and women abroad to die in undeclared wars, incumbents in Congress have a 90% re-election rate, and those that fall within the 10% or retire get cushy high-paying jobs at law firms and companies that lobby the federal government. These people are intoxicated with power. Nothing proves the post-constitutional argument better than the Snowden saga. What he uncovered and the fact that the practice largely continues today says more than I could possibly articulate. One argument that I've heard made by United States senators and friends alike in defense of the mass surveillance goes something like this. If you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to worry about. That argument is not only naive, but it displays a staggering level of constitutional ignorance and, quite frankly, spits on what the founders of this nation stood for generally and the Constitution specifically. People lose sight of the truth that the federal government is a creation of the states that ratified the Constitution. They have a few enumerated powers. That's it. D.C. is not omnipotent and all-powerful. So why do we as a whole bend over and take whatever Washington, D.C. dictates? The Founding Fathers would be astonished at the level of obedience and submission on the parts of the individual states. The idea that they have the power to vacuum up what is the equivalent of our houses, papers, and effects, as articulated by the Fourth Amendment, more on that in a minute, is not only illegal, it's unconstitutional and diametrically opposed to everything the Founding Fathers stood for. They stood for liberty. They stood for don't hurt people and don't take their stuff and left the legacy of a legal framework to ensure that we will be left alone, and if we do hurt somebody, you will, in a civilized, legal, and constitutional manner, be prosecuted and taken to face a jury of your peers. Let's examine more detail the unconstitutional nature of the mass surveillance program. As he said in his book, Permanent Record, Snowden points out that 50% of the Bill of Rights were intended to make the job of law enforcement harder. Think about the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th Amendments, especially the 4th, which protects you from unreasonable searches and seizures. By the way, if you would like to learn more about the Bill of Rights, check out episode 37. So I want to read you the 4th Amendment and then relate it to the mass surveillance program. It reads, quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So let's break that down with the NSA's mass surveillance program in mind. You are to be secure in your persons, houses, paper, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. 
So what do you think are the equivalent of persons, houses, papers, and effects today? I mean, how much of a stretch is it to make the legal argument that our phones, devices, our internet-connected appliances, our vehicles, all equate to our houses? Or our computer files are equated to papers? Or our data, including metadata, is considered effects? Is that argument in the least bit controversial? I mean, given the mental gymnastics and the creativity that, that the Supreme Court and lower courts have used to rewrite the Constitution with their opinions over the last 150 years, I hardly think so. All of that stuff shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly described the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. So let me get this straight. You need specific evidence of a specific person of a specific crime under oath. The Constitution requires that you seek a warrant before you surveil somebody. It requires that the government target an individual with a judge's blessing. You may want to make exceptions for non-U.S. citizens, but surely citizens are constitutionally protected, no? One of the reasons we fought the Revolutionary War was the king's soldiers were in the practice of searching suspects' homes without a warrant under the authority of the king. They were all powerful. If they suspected that you had done something wrong, then in essence, they kicked in your front door. No warrant was needed. The founding fathers wanted to put an end to this practice. So let's say you buy my argument. The next obvious question is, how the hell do they get away with this? Well, because the federal government claims the Fourth Amendment does not apply to modern-day technology. They claim their surveillance program is not a search, and it's not a seizure. And how do they justify that? Because you already shared that data with your internet service provider, and therefore you have no constitutional protections. And on top of that, there's no search and seizure until an NSA analyst actually acquires your specific data, not when the data is vacuumed up with millions or, I guess, billions of other people's data. They just change the language to meet their illegal acts, and presto, make them appear not illegal. So they can collect and hold your data, and sometime in the future, search for evidence of a crime. Does that sound like the United States of America? I mean, come on. Either we live in a constitutional republic or we don't. The federal government cannot pick and choose when it abides by the Constitution and when it does not. Snowden rightly argues that this is a, quote, extremist interpretation of the Fourth Amendment, end quote. We are supposed to buy the argument that we surrender our rights by using technology? Really? And what's really sad is this goes all the way to the top. Congress, the president, all of whom take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, yet they support programs that are in direct opposition to it. Then what good are they? What good is the Constitution? How are we really different from China or Russia or even Canada? The Constitution is not a selectively embraced document. It's all or nothing. If you don't buy this argument, that's fine. But why are we not having this conversation? Why don't these things come up in a court of law? Because the federal government blocks it, obscures it, and it scares us into agreeing with loss of liberty over security. One final point about the Constitution. As you probably have heard the term, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. I mean, it says right there in the document itself. So when you hear government officials and talking heads quoting all the laws Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and other government whistleblowers have violated, you have to ask yourself, are the laws themselves constitutional? And if they're not, then were any laws ever broken? For example, if Congress passes a law that restricts free speech, that law is null and void because it's unconstitutional. 
If Congress passes a law that restricts people from peaceably assembling, that law is null and void because it's unconstitutional. What about laws restricting freedom of press or freedom of religion or the right of people to keep and bear arms? All those laws would be null and void because they are unconstitutional. Well, how about if Congress passes a law that says the NSA can bulk collect all domestic metadata and subject American citizens to mass surveillance without a warrant? Well, you guessed it, that law would be null and void because it's unconstitutional. The authorities must have an individualized, documented reason to surveil anyone. I want to spend just a moment on the Espionage Act. For those of you who think Edward Snowden is a coward, that he should just come back and face the music here in the court of law, it's important for you to understand how people like him are handled by the government. They are not allowed a trial by a jury of their peers as prescribed by the Constitution. See, they are charged under the Espionage Act, which is just another handy-dandy government-only creation used to prosecute enemies of the state. It applies the same to so-called spies who sold information to a foreign government for private benefit as to those who provide journalists with information for the benefit of the public, like Snowden and Assange. They are considered the same thing. Whistleblowers are not allowed to tell the jury why they did what they did, their motivation. They are not allowed to tell the jury how unethical, immoral, illegal, and unconstitutional the programs are that they uncovered. The crimes are considered committed against the government, not a person. Thus, there's an entire different set of rules that apply. It's really brilliant in its sinisterness because it removes the possibility of jury nullification. That happens when the jury just says, the hell with it, we don't care what the law says, this guy's innocent. The jury can only consider if the crime was committed, not why. Snowden says he'd be willing to stand trial, just not under the Espionage Act. He wants a public interest defense, so his motivation can be considered by the jury and, in essence, put the federal government and the intelligence community on trial. So I want to wrap this episode up with some of the loose ends I collected during my research, notable nuggets that just did not fit cleanly into the narrative as I went through it. First, it's quite obvious that the American people are no longer partners of government. Not even sure we ever were. But we are subjects. Our rights are routinely violated by the federal government, and none of the constitutional checks and balances work to rectify it. Secondly, Snowden points out that the federal government uses classifications, i.e. top secret and so on, primarily to hide things from the American people, who have no need to know in the view of the government officials. Secrecy becomes a cloak for illegality. Government becomes unaccountable, and the people don't know. Therefore, we are powerless to rein in government excesses or to prosecute for abuses of power. Third, Snowden brings up the point about patriotism. He asks the question, is it blind allegiance to the state, to the federal government, even while they rip the Constitution upright in front of our face? I think not. Fourth, we live naked before power. Companies like Facebook and Google, together with the U.S. government, know everything about us. We know little about them. As Snowden points out in his Joe Rogan podcast appearance, we have public officials and private citizens. Think about the two adjectives, public and private. In theory, the private citizens should know everything about their public officials. That's how the system was designed to work. But it's quite the opposite these days. Fifth, we own less and less of our data. Data increasingly belongs to corporations and the government. It's becoming a commodity, which means we are a commodity. We're being exploited and manipulated. 
We are being sold, and it's all legal because the powerful make the policies and the laws, and they are unaccountable to the people. So, after all that, do you still think Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, and other government whistleblowers broke the law and are guilty of treason and all other sorts of federal crimes? Or do you think our federal government is out of control, maintains way too much power, and are likely to continue doing whatever the hell they want regardless of who sits in the White House, regardless of which party controls Congress, and regardless of the composition of the Supreme Court? It's a lost cause without dramatic action from some of the individual states. One final thought directly from Edward Snowden. He argues that none of us should wait for a hero to save us. What matters is heroic decisions. You are never more than one decision away from making the world a better place. In other words, do something. Talk to your sphere of influence. Publish a podcast or establish a video channel. Well, not on YouTube, of course, because you probably won't be welcome there. Put one brick in the building. Then someone else can build on your brick. And one brick at a time, we can build awareness. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.